Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Coming up on The Nose, the weekly cultural roundtable of The Colin McEnroe Show. You know, we've been doing these noses for more than 10 years. I don't think I've ever had an episode where I cared so much about the material. The Recruit on Netflix is one of my favorite TV series ever. And White Noise is a movie based on one of my favorite novels ever. So expect a lot of laughing and crying from me. cafeteria food. So um, we are going to talk today about the movie White Noise and perhaps inevitably talk a little bit about the novel White Noise. Uh, We'll also talk a little bit later in the show about The Recruit, which is a kind of uh, antic dark comedy uh, about the CIA. And you know, whenever things like this come up, and like I've sort of engaged a lot of people uh, on social media about The Recruit because I am a fanatic about it. Uh, and people talk about implausibility. Um, and I, I don't even really think this series is committed to plausibility in any particular way. But I just do want to say, apropos of plausibility, today is the second anniversary of January 6th. George Santos is happening. Kevin McCarthy is happening, or arguably not happening. Don't tell me that things aren't plausible. <laughs> don't tell me that massive dysfunction uh, in the federal government uh, in, a, in our electoral system is not possible. It is so possible. It's getting harder and harder to invent, to invent things that are as bizarre as what is actually happening. Uh, all right. So uh, here on the nose today, we have Jacques Lamar, playwright and chief communications officer at Buzz Engine. Irene Papoulis teaches uh, writing at Trinity College. Pedro Soto is president and CEO of High Grade Precision Technologies. As I say, we're starting out with White Noise, an adaptation of the 1985 novel uh, by Don DeLillo, a novel admired by many people, but 
perhaps regarded, John Powers, I just heard him say, widely regarded as unfilmable. Uh, whether, whether or not Noam Baumbach has disproved that statement is something we'll be talking about. But um, let's begin with a little uh, sound from the movie. Uh, this is, uh, I, I, let me just quickly set this up. So this, the movie takes place in a college town. Uh, in, I believe, upstate New York. I don't know how specific they ever get about that. But um, it's, a, it's in a college town in the mid-1980s. Um, one of the triggering events, perhaps the triggering event, is a railway accident in which a plume escapes. Uh, it becomes known as the airborne toxic event, so much so that if you're watching it with somebody who hasn't watched ever the novel and you say airborne toxic event, the next thing that happens is that those words appear in sans serif. Uh, you know, black capitals on your screen. <laughs> anyway, here we go. You're going to hear um, some of the principles here of the show, uh, including uh, two uh, younger actors, Sam Nivola and his sister May Nivola, uh, Rafi Cassidy as Denise, and then as the parents, uh, Adam Driver as Jack Gladney, uh, Greta Gerwig, Gerwig as his wife, Babette. The radio calls it a feathery plume, but it's not a plume. That's what Dad said. What is it? It's like a shapeless, growing thing, a dark, black, breathing thing of smoke. Why do they call it a plume? The airtime is valuable. They can't go into long torture. It's called niadine derivative, or niadine D. We saw it in a movie in school on toxic waste. What does it cause? The movie wasn't sure what it does to humans. Mainly, it was rats growing urgent lumps. But that's what the movie said. What does the radio say? Skin irritation and sweaty palms. Sweaty palms and rats. The radio, not. Then they up. Updated it to nausea, vomiting, shortness of breath. The radio or the movie? Both. No, it won't come this way. How do you know? Because it won't. It's perfectly calm and still today. When there's a wind this time of year, it blows that way, not this way. What if it blows this way? It won't. But what if just this one time? It won't. Why should it? They just closed part of the interstate. They would want to do that, of course. Why Why would they? They just would. It's a sensible precaution. It's a way to facilitate movement Hold on, to service Jack is here. The stovers say the spill from the tank card was 35,000 gallons. She said her girls were complaining of sweaty palms. There's been a correction. Told them they ought to be throwing up. Is anyone nauseous? All right. So um, these, this is a new, not a nuclear family exactly. It's actually a, a couple, each on their fourth marriage with kids from previous marriages. But they're trying to process this moment uh, and trying to figure out what kinds of uh, symptoms they would be having if they were in the kind of trouble that they think they might be in. Uh, so let's get this going here. Um, so maybe Irene, I just maybe just take everybody's temperature uh, here on this movie. Uh, Irene Papoulis, tell us just generally what you're thinking right now. Um, all right. Well, I read the book in the eighties and I love the sort of edgy, edgy paranoia in it. And seeing the movie now, I, I recognize the edgy paranoia, but I feel like it's so much more a part of our culture that I'm still thinking about the role of a movie like that right now, because I think we've, we've, you know, we really do have airborne toxic events. It can't be a metaphor, you know, and, um, it wasn't exactly a metaphor then either, but I feel like I, I'm thinking about the relation, you know, seeing it now, whether it's relevant now. A lot of people think it is extremely relevant now. I think it was amazing how how much DeLillo predicted at the time in 1985, but I'm, st- but I'm still thinking about it, how it works now in 2023. Yeah, I mean, we should say in, in 1985, this was not Irene... A far-fetched thing, and there were already worries about sort of China syndrome type meltdowns that would release toxic plumes of radioactive materials and stuff like that. There was plenty of that going on, so so it's kind of interesting. I mean, it's 
I think what you're saying is not that it's not relevant now, but that it's maybe too on the nose to be, you know, anything other than uncomfortably relevant. Yes, I, I, I guess that is what I would say. And it's also interesting that their their sense of they will take care of it is different from what we have now. You know, we don't have any sense of, well, they are going to figure it out um, in the way that we did back then also. Right. Although you can hear that clip. Opinions are kind of divided all the way through about whether they are any, any good at all. And if you read a lot of Don DeLillo, you know that he doesn't think they are any good at anything. Um, all right. So, uh, Pedro, how about you? Give us uh, just your overall sense of this film. I mean, I came into this not having read the book and not having seen actually anything that Noah Baumbach had directed. So um, so a lot of it, I think, was lost on me. Um, <laughs> it, it, you know, it's something that after two hours and 15 minutes, I was like still trying to kind of process. I laughed. I thought it was good. I thought the acting was great. I thought the overall message, like you said, it's like, I, I could see it's like, oh, this was something that was really groundbreaking in 1985. And I'm seeing it filmed in, you know, 2023. And I could, I, you know, it, it it really felt its age when I was watching it, um, both in good and bad ways. And I think that, um, I, I don't know, this one was like, part of me was like, I mean, so my 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 immediate take was, um, you know, this was like a Wes Anderson movie without the irony. And, um, <laughs> you know, it, it just like it's just the way it was constructed and structured with like the the kind of like the, you know, really, really, um, you know, forced dialogue and, and sort of how, how it was ran through. And I think that um, overall you know, it's, I, I'm like, it's like, I need more information people to kind of you know, marinate in this to see that being said, I thought as it got toward the end, I actually really liked the last 30 minutes straight through to the end credits, which I think were my favorite part of the movie. Yes. We'll have to talk yeah. about the, the end credits are yeah. completely amazing. No matter what you think about the rest of the movie. Yeah. Uh, I do want to just point out Pedro, um, ironically that Noah Baumbach and, and Wes Anderson mm-hmm. have been frequent collaborators. Uh, and I believe Baumbach wrote the script for the life aquatic with Steve Zissou. So life aquatic and mm-hmm. uh, I think fantastic Mr. Fox. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, so there's some obvious overlap there. Hey, yeah, Pedro, if I could just stay with this for a second, I just maybe kind of want to make this point, but I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. Cause I love what you say about the fact that it's, you know, it's both a nice represent, an interesting representation of 1985, and also feels a little bit dated. And one of the things that they did that kind of interests me in a politically incorrect way is the book is just a book about white people because it was 1985, you know, uh, and mm-hmm. so you have an academic setting and everything. And it's not that there wasn't anybody in academia who was a person of color, but nobody felt any kind of representational burden at that time. So it's a bunch of white people, uh, and. And Bombach, I think, because it's just, you know, it's not a good optic these days, has brought in, uh, has made it a, a much more diverse cast. Uh, Don Cheadle plays one of the really important roles. Uh, Jody Turner-Smith also plays a, a pretty major role as well. And I was thinking, you know, if they wanted to make it look like 1985, they could have just had it be all white people. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's weird when you make that effort, which is a laudable effort of representation, you're kind of taking it out of 85. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're right. And you mentioned that even the character is sort of like a Don Cheadle's character was a former uh, was a sportscaster. He's a former, former New York sports writer named Murray Siskin. I mean, he's still yeah. named he's still named Murray Siskin in this movie. <laughs> and so, I, I mean, I think that, yeah, it, it's kind of interesting now that 
looking at what he's saying and how he's speaking and doing all this stuff, definitely I could see that kind of behind that, um, which maybe sort of increases kind of the the artifice of 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 the movie. I mean, it definitely felt like a like a play. Um, it, it it did feel like something that he was. I guess that's why I think about the Wes Anderson thing. Like everything was very sort of put together in, in a very um, you know uh, like deliberate way that didn't feel like like a natural flow of a movie, but that felt like he was creating something to evoke a specific thing, and that's kind of how the movie really felt like it was kind of lurching from area to area, which I think was one of its problems. All right. So uh, before we get to Jacques, uh, since we're talking about Don Cheadle, let's hear another clip from the movie. Don Cheadle does play uh, this guy, Murray, who's a sports writer turned academic. Uh, He has a lot of sort of mystical interpretations of everything. Uh, So we hear him. Supermarkets play an incredibly big role in both the novel and the movie. So let's hear uh, Don Cheadle and Adam Driver. The supermarket is a waiting place. It recharges us spiritually. It's a gateway. Look how bright. Look how full of psychic data, waves and radiation. All the letters and numbers are here, all the colors of the spectrum, all the voices and sounds, all the code words and ceremonial phrases. We just have to know how to decipher it. How's that lovely woman of yours? She's been different somehow since the event. Suffered a collective trauma. She wears her sweatsuit all the time. She stares out of windows and cries for no reason. I don't know how to help her. And I've been distracted myself preparing for the Hitler and the kids. conference. And uh, back in school, Steffi no longer wears her protective mask. And you? I've got another doctor's appointment tomorrow. What does he say about your status as a doomed man? I haven't told him. And since he hasn't found anything wrong, I, I'm not going to bring it up. I lie to doctors all the time. So do I. But why? Well, there's a fairly universal thing. So, uh, Jacques, you have the floor. Whatever you want to say. Uh, well, first of all, this is all going to be coming from my perch on the top of Mount Idiot because I didn't know this was a book. Um, I didn't know. I don't know who Don DeLillo is. I did not. I had not heard of him before. Um, so I actually came to this movie without any kind of sense that this was actually based on a book written in the 80s until I kind of started Googling during the film to find out a bit more. I'm like, oh, it's a book. Oh, it's a book that actually gets taught in school and colleges and whatnot is important. And then I was Googling what's postmodernism and all this other stuff. So I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole. Um, So all that to say, um, you know, for people who aren't familiar with with the book or like myself, weren't aware that it was a book. Um, you know, it's it's an experience where I wasn't necessarily feeling like, oh, it's tethered to its time. Um, I was really kind of taking it for, you know, uh, and a piece of art that wasn't necessarily based on on any pre-existing um, material. And, you know, it uh, at first there you know the the beginning of the film there's so much talking over each other and you know conversations happening uh between characters simultaneously you know uh and there is um there's so much about academia in the first part and then the second part of the film is kind of like the you know sort of the disaster of the 
the toxic, the airborne toxic event, or is it toxic airborne event? Airborne toxic. Um, event. Airborne toxic event, um, and that has quite a bit of comedy to it. That's surprising. And then the third part of the film um, uh, is is a very very different in tone to a certain in a certain sense um, because it really kind of peels back the layers of their marriage and um, addiction and this mysterious figure that's been kind of foreshadowed in the two previous segments. It's really, um, it's not the kind of film where I would go and recommend it to everybody. It's super smart. I felt flashes of Wes Anderson. I felt flashes of, of, um, of Woody Allen. I felt flashes of, to the eighties point of Steven Spielberg when everyone's like parked on the highway and getting out to look yeah. at the, to- the toxic event. And, uh, you know, there was, there was so much going on. And so it's, it's odd because it doesn't feel like a whole in a certain sense. Um, but it is in, in its own weird universe, a whole, this piece. So, and the acting is incredible. I agree. Um, from the leads, Don Cheadle was so good in this, and the kids are outstanding too. I would and agree that there's, so, there's very some interesting ca- casting choices. I had a little trouble with Cheadle. I can talk about that if necessary. But um, oh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, well, I'll just say it right now. First of all, I worship Don Cheadle. I think he's great, and so I would never bet against Don Cheadle being great in yeah. something because I would lose money. Um, however, and some of it is I should just recuse myself. I read this book. I've read this book cover to cover at least three times. Um, it's been a while since I've been through it, but uh, and and maybe browsed it some other times. The the speech about the supermarket I actually read on the air when we did a whole show about supermarkets. That's how imbued I am in this. And so I have a very specific idea of what Murray Siskind is like. And and I just and, and he has a lot of these kind of soliloquies, both in the book and in the movie. And they have yeah. a kind of rhythm. And I feel like Cheadle doesn't quite ever hit that rhythm. I don't think that's his fault. I mean these are these it's asking a lot from any actor to to make this work after having it it having sat on a yeah. page for and and a lot of what he has to say and what you know Adam Driver has to say you know can lean into into the ridiculous like this entire thing that opens the film about car crashes and the beauty of car <laughs> crashes and what they you know say about us uh you know it there's a an amount of ridiculousness to well, the the fetishization of the violence of a car crash or the fetishization of the grocery store or Elvis. And so there's this kind of uh, ridiculousness of academia that's going on. Sorry, Irene. Uh, <laughs> well, and, actually, you know, can I? Yes, yeah, okay, go, so there, go there. Go ahead. We're going to finish it. Um, you know, I agree. And that's why I thought that it was it was funnier back then because it wasn't as pervasive you know and i I mean i think that the the um you know the title white noise you know the idea that there's always this background of advertising and talking and people talking and as as you said jock people talking over each other and all that and it was and it was uh disturbing like as something that's coming and we're getting more and more of this and we don't like it 
And now we have, you know, TVs in every airport waiting room, you know, yeah. TVs and the, there's a, you yeah, know, I, I go to this yeah. gym and there's a TV in the sauna of the gym, you know? <laughs> and so it's not funny or, or, or sort of, it's not funny anymore at all, you know? And so in a way mm. we want to escape from it, it, it uh, as opposed to just being paranoid about all the white noise in our culture, you know? And, and in a way it really, I feel like that it's really about, and the book is really about partly about anyway, the white noise that, that kind of is, that yeah. pervades our brains, you know? And now do we want a movie about that? I don't know. Um, but Colin, I see what you mean about the, about the Don, I thought, I also thought Don, Don Cheadle did a great job and there were a, black academics back then, of course, oh, yes, but, of course yeah. um, but I agree that he wasn't, if you wanted the Murray from the book. He wasn't the Murray from the book. And, and the reason I think that's but fair to bring is up that is that important. I don't know. Well, yeah, I, the only ahead, the reason that I think it might be important is this is an unusual adaptation of a book, uh, in the sense that like pretty much every word I heard on the screen was from the book. I mean, usually they twist things around a little bit. Yeah. And it's no disrespect to Cheadle at all. I mean, I feel I felt you know, we've all had the experience of watching I don't know, when they when Robin Williams was in The World According to Garp, I was watching this and thinking, you know, he's obviously a pretty good actor, studied at Juilliard, all this stuff. He's not just a comedian, but he doesn't know how to do this material. It's just they're not right for each other. I mean, and th that can absolutely be the case. But I, I love what you're saying, Irene. And, and I, I think, yeah, I mean, to me, one of the messages of the book was academia has no choice but to try to respond to popular culture. We should say that the protagonist, Adam Driver, Jack Gladney, teaches Hitler studies, uh, and he teaches cl clearly as kind of a cultural studies course, and he's like a big shot as a result of doing this for some reason, and Don Cheadle's character, Murray Siskin, is coming in. He wants to do the same thing with Elvis. He wants to like, teach Elvis studies, um, mm -hmm. and—, and <laughs> Which is which is what people do now. Yes. You know? Well, uh, you know, the funny thing about that is that, like, yeah, I it didn't even occur to me. I could see, like, when he's looking for, like, the, the, the legitimacy of, of doing his class. Um, but it didn't even rise exactly to be like, I, I was like, oh, it's Elvis. It wasn't like the ridiculousness of comparing Hitler and Elvis. It kind of became apparent during that scene, but it, it, it felt kind of like a co-equal thing at that moment. And it didn't realize that like it was ridiculous to be teaching Elvis in the eighties um, because in the nineties, exactly. Like I, I, I think we did, uh, you know, have classes that were much more squarely on pop culture and current events. And I know one of my classical music classes analyzed, you know, rock and roll, um, uh, you know, hard rock, Van Halen, Eddie Van Halen, like guitar uh, solos. So, you know, it, you know, it, it was definitely more of a, a thing that it was already well on its way when I was in college. That's a thank you for sharing that. That is so beautiful. <laughs> it's so wonderful. We do need to talk about this, uh, the credit sequence. Before we do that, I do want to say just I don't know if anybody else picked this up, but at the end of the movie, there is this sudden appearance by this very, very stern and overall kind of rejecting German nun slash medical personnel. And it's Barbara Sukawa, uh, who was Fassbender's, one of two Fassbender's two uh, great leading ladies. Uh, and just kind of, she's on the screen for, I don't uh. know, four or five minutes, uh, tops. Uh, but another interesting piece of casting. And the kids, two of the kids, uh, it's this complex, as we say, set of relationships with four different marriages on each side. But two of the kids are, are Nivola kids who are the, uh, son and daughter of the actor Alessandro uh, Nivola and the actor Emily Mortimer. So, um, 
Just some interesting choices there with the cast. All right. So all three of you, you got to talk about the supermarket. And maybe, Jacques, we should uh, get going with you. The credits start to roll. Uh, and something that sounds like a David Byrne song but isn't starts playing. <laughs> I thought it was David Byrne. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and people start dancing. I don't know, Jacques, just uh, just say a little bit about how that worked for you. I mean, it it's really, uh, I have to say, I didn't watch it all the way to the end, mm. um, partially because I had over two days watched eight hours of The Recruit and then was <laughs> watching two hours and 15 minutes of this. Um of this film. So I was a little bit tired and felt like I had gotten everything I was going to get out of it. It's very, I thought it was very cute. If there's something underlying that is nefarious, I missed it. Um, but it's this really kind of, uh, uh, you know, kind of ballet of the, in, within the grocery store, which is kind of held up as this like Nirvana for the, you know, uh, for the commercial era. And uh, I don't know. I mean, if there was something beyond beyond that, but I mean, it was just there was a moment where uh, I can't remember if it was in the credits, but the the butcher chops something and a little blood flies on one of the women's faces. <laughs> so <laughs> I screamed. We should say that totally my humor. The, the song being the song being played, you'll hear it at the end of the segment too, is New Body Rumba by LCD Sound System. And Irene, it's also functions as a curtain call, right? Gradually, the screen is populated both by dancers and by people who've been in the movie. Right. And and the song was really good. The song made me get up and dance a little bit, you know? <laughs> I like that. But the idea that a grocery store is nirvana, in a way that goes back to the 50s, not the 80s, you know, like we're going to have a wonderful, super deluxe, everything, and it's going to be wonderful, you know. And um, so, I was, so I was a little bit, you know, thinking like, wait, why, like, what is this ending doing? What is it saying? You know, is it, you know, is it kind of like grotesque in the sense of white noise and the supermarket is white noise? Well, it doesn't feel that way. It doesn't feel grotesque at all. It does feel like nirvana. But what does that mean at the end of this movie? I don't know. I'm not sure. But it was really it, fun to listen to and watch. All right, Pedro, it, did make, it did remind me how much I hate going to the store <laughs> and how I yeah. love going. Out. Like, I'm finding that I'm getting closer and closer to ordering groceries. Like, I'm ordering cat food on Amazon just so I don't have to go <laughs> literally less than a mile to go into a store. Pedro, you get the last word. I I mean that A and P was so well reconstructed from the A and P's of my memory, um, except it was probably about five times larger than they would be. Uh, I watched the credits, I reround the credits, and I watched them again. I just I loved it. Um, the music was great. I loved the curtain call of everyone, and kind of tying into the end about kind of the last themes about mortality and we wait and right like we we kind of live our lives and bringing in this, you know, basically, at least in, in in the movie, in the book, I guess the cultural touchstone of the grocery store is the thing that everyone goes to. And that's your kind of commonplace. And, you know, with, with the death of retail culture, I mean, it, it is something that really does call back to the 80s, probably would have been the, the mall would have been more there. Uh, but definitely, I think, the um, I don't know, I really I loved it. I love just watching it. And I love the the you know, the, the zoom out at the end and the fact that the credits just keep rolling and they, it's a live take and they just keep dancing and I was just transfixed. So <laughs> The danger, of course, well, is the people wind up saying, I wish the rest of the movie were this much fun. But um, we'll, take a, we're gonna <laughs> do, we'll take a little break. We'll go out that, with that very song. We'll come back. We'll talk about The Recruit. 
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right, we are back. So uh, our panel today is uh, Jacques Lamar, Irene Papoulis, Pedro Soto. We're about to talk about the recruit. Just around the time the show was starting, I, I realized what we should have done with this. So I, we're a smarter person. I would have figured out how to do, that we should do this, which is I should absent myself from this conversation. And then you guys could talk about what's wrong with me, uh, that I like this thing so much. Uh, but uh, I didn't think about that soon enough. Uh, the Recruit is an eight-episode limited series created by Alexi Hawley, who co-wrote four of its episodes. Doug Lyman, who's, you know, pretty strong director, uh, directed uh, Swingers and Go and The Born Identity and The Edge of Tomorrow, uh, directed, directs the first two episodes. Uh, the cast is not full of star-studded people, although the star of it, Noah Centino, uh, as Owen Sendri- uh, Hendricks, I, I, as I understand it, if I were a young woman between the ages of 16 and 20, I would know exactly who he was uh, from some Netflix rom-coms or something. Uh, and uh, not, a, not a lot of other big names in it. Let's hear a, a little bit from the first episode. Oh, every episode has a title that's like a seven-letter acronym. And you, you have to like look up in, on the interwebs or something what the acronym refers to. So anyway, this is the first episode. Uh, you're going to hear Laura Haddock as a Max Mladzi, who is a kind of... Uh, Eastern European criminal, uh, and Noah Centineo, I guess that's how you say his name, is, is Owen Hendricks, who's a newly recruited, very young and raw lawyer for the CIA. What happened to your hand? I closed it in a car door. Liar. I've pulled out enough fingernails to know what it looks like afterwards. You seem really proud of that. Shouldn't I be? Some of those nails were for the CIA. Is that one of the things that you're threatening to expose? No. So how do you like the agency so far? That's great. Who is your handler? That was a dumb question because now I know you have no hot file on me. Which means you have no idea what I know or who I can burn. Maybe. But I'm going to find out soon enough. Only if I tell you, which I won't. Unless you do some things for me. Who put out your fingernail? No one. I have classified CIA documents. You have documents? So many documents. Who pulled out your nail? An operative in Yemen. I went to ask her about you. Her? You know you give away information without realizing it. I'm surprised you survived your trip. All right. You're hearing very much one of the themes of the series, which is he, this character, Owen, at some point says to somebody, I can't remember who, 
Uh, do you think I'd really be an intelligence agent and be this bad at it? Um, which is kind of his motto uh, in a lot of ways. All right. So uh, I loved this thing. Not everybody else did. Uh, that's going to be kind of interesting. Uh, but so, Jacques, even just the way you said I had to watch eight episodes of this, the tone of voice, it revealed so much. I I, I want to make it clear I did not hate it. Um, and... I, I think the two, you know, ostensible leads, um, that being Noah Centineo and Laura Haddock, are actually, I think, both excellent in it. Um, <clears throat> I, to me, there was, there were big issues in tone for the show, um, in that, you know, I think, and and I think you perceive it to be sort of a dark comedy, um. You know, it seemed like they were going for some office comedy stuff. Um, and it also wants to be a thriller. And I don't think it's impossible to be both. I think, you know, uh, across its, what, 60-year history, James Bond has, you know, managed to juggle that mix. You know, sometimes... The jokiness came at the expense of the thriller stuff during the, the Roger Moore era or, or during the the Daniel Craig era. It shifted more towards action than humor, but the humor wasn't completely gone. Um, I just felt like the comedy of it was so clumsily handled. Um, and there was, and you know, I, I think that there's room for you know, a great comedy about life within the CIA, but it would establish rules and then trash those rules. It would kind of set up characters to be, you know, kind of fascinating in some way and then sort of let you down. And um, one of the things that I couldn't really understand was everyone seemed to be very down on this extremely likable lead character who is doing his best to do a good job. Everyone's making it sound like he's a screw up, but he actually seems to be doing, uh, you know, he's perceived to be a threat immediately upon arrival by these two coworkers who seem to have no purpose other than to try to undermine him for much of the series um, to no end. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's sort of like you're wanting to see why he's a screw up, but he never actually really evidences it. And uh, ultimately, I stopped caring about the whole back plot other than trying to get her back to Belarus. Right. So I want to get I wanna, characters are coming in. I want to get to the other panelists here. I do want to say just very quickly, you don't have to go to James Bond. I mean, you can go right to Slow Horses, which is on right now, which is a similar, somewhat more serious uh, espionage thing, but it's certainly not non-comic. I mean, Gary Oldman's character is mm -hmm. designed to make us laugh. So, I mean, it, it does happen all the time. So, but, um, yeah. or a lot anyway. So I've always maintained that the serial comic mode is the, is the one that we're in most of the time these days. Uh, and the question is, is it funny enough? And obviously this was funny enough for me, but not for everybody else. So Pedro, you have the floor now. Um, yeah, I, I just came off seeing uh, Jack Ryan on Amazon last week and also at the same time finishing up Slow Horses, um, which I'm actually reading uh, the books at the same time for that one. And I thought both of them did. Um, Jack Ryan did the action better. Slow Horses did the uh, the workplace uh, dysfunction better. 
Um, and both of them were actually, I think, less in terms of overall runtime than this one. Um, and actually, one more that I'm going to throw in, which is, I think, a lot more similar than different, um, and is probably superior by far, is The Flight Attendant uh, on HBO, um, which is, um, again, about the, uh, you know, the inner workings of the CIA at the end of the day in some major way. Um, so I, yeah, the, my big thought on this was, I was watching this, I was like, man, this feels like a network TV show. Uh, and it just looks uh, sort of sexed up a little bit. And sure enough, like you say, uh, you know, Lyman directs it, which gives it some of some of the episodes that that kind of flare and flash. And um, it's written or created by people who with a background in network TV. It just, it, it hasn't, the, the comedy of it, it everyone feels so dour and just mean and you need to have some likability to the villains. Like they really need, like, like everyone, like I, like the, like the pair, the two people who, uh, you know, his, his coworkers that really seek to undermine him, they just seem awful. And like, you need to be like in a comedy, like you need to be like Gary Oldman, like you need to be so awful that like you kind of see their point and like them, but I just don't see their point. Um, of why they don't like him. Um, and yeah, so I don't know if I'll, if I'll, I'm about halfway through it and it's, it's just not kidding. I think uh, more recent shows have done that, uh, this, this dance uh, a little bit better. I do want to shout out before we go to Irene, two of these uh, performances by subordinate characters. One of them is a guy named Christian Brun, who's this kind of heavy set guy who plays, I think his name is Jonas Ferber, Jonas Ferber. And he's a guy who's been at the agency too long and he is cracking and he is never leaving his office and just using Adderall yeah. and, and sleep meds uh, to sort of try to hold everything together. And I find him hilarious. I also uh, loved uh, this woman, uh, this willowy uh, woman, uh, her character, I think is named Amelia. Uh, she's a, this completely transactional uh, lawyer who agrees agrees to start dating the lead, but she's got all these uh, specific things about like when they're going to kiss and what kind of restaurant she'll go to. At one point she says, I'm an eater. So it's like it's important where, where they go. And she's also practicing to be a network talking head. So she actually has a little fake TV studio in her apartment. Uh, I, I loved her. I thought she was hilarious. But Irene, you have the floor. Which figures into their, her, her, their sex life, which in a funny way, I thought. Um, but yeah, you know, it's interesting to hear um, what Jacques and Pedro say, because I can't really disagree with it. But at the same time, I have to say, I watched this having read Colin Facebook post that if you didn't like this, you couldn't be his friend anymore. So I was like, OK, you know, maybe we all did. Right? You guys are all Talk dead already. to me. I just want to say yeah. at 2 p.m. today. That I final the nose. Thank you, everyone. It's great. It's all over. Yeah. Alex, Bye. Alex, yeah, Alex Bean for the Boston Globe and I. We were going to be in the Mormon afterlife together. We had this whole plan. We we're going to live on a planet. He doesn't like it. I'm through with him. So I wash my hands uh, yeah. of you. But but continue, Irene. Yeah, what do I do? And so I watch it saying like, okay, I want to play the believing game with this. If Colin likes this so much, why am I not liking it at first? You know, I wanted to. I I I wanted to to. To, I wanted to like it. And by the end, I actually did like it much more. I think that the, the end, the last, say, four episodes were kind of better than the beginning because it just did turn into the rhythm of what's going to happen and how are they going to escape. And, you know, the characterizations were really good and everything. But I, I thought they were pretty good. But I also um, have to say that I read it as, you know, like thinking about 
as a woman watching this versus a man watching it, you know, because in a way it seems like a male fantasy of, you know, the way he's in it, you know, everyone's down on him because he's the new guy, I think, you know, he's the new guy and he's, and he just has like a spirit of adventure and, 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 and they just can't stand it because they're, they, they've been there forever and they're jaded and everything. And he's the young and that is kind of a male. And then he gets to have all this fun and all this adventure. And then there's also, you know, the woman back home, the girl next door, who's, who's still in love with him. And it's kind of a great fantasy, great sort of heterosexual male fantasy. There, there's the excitement and the energy of these women, but then the, the girl back home. And so, but watching it as a woman, part of me thought, you know, okay, is that, it's always the choice. The, you know, the, I got, I got, I got um, distracted by his relationships with these women. And that became like interesting to me and why is it that you know what is the intrigue about being with this woman versus that woman and which one he wants and which one am I and why do I have to be just one of them and you know and all that and so that was a very different level of watching it but that's what I got involved with as I was watching it although I would point out two of those three women are totally in control of the relationship right I mean Max you know has the upper hand on him times 20 uh and uh and, and Amelia, if that's what her name is, also is just, you know, make, is making all of her own decisions about everything that happens, like, in her life, including with this guy. And he is kind I mean, obviously, he's very handsome, and he sounds like Mark Ruffalo. His voice is like Mark Ruffalo. Uh, mm-hmm. And and But there is something that's very—they try to make him into a sad sack, you know? Somehow or other, he doesn't even have a CIA charge card, so he's trying to figure out, like, <laughs> how to finance these adventures he goes on. Uh, there, There's—you know, the first time you see him— uh, the first thing that happens in the movie, I don't know if uh, how many of us picked this up, but he's in, out in the snow, like kind of a future event. He's peeing in the snow, and he's singing a Taylor Swift song. He's singing I Knew You Were Trouble, uh, which in fact completely defines his relationship with Max. Uh, and mm-hmm. I thought kind of that level of whimsy, you, you sort of, you know, I don't know. I had to like it anyway. But But it was, you know, it was weird because it would bring it up and then it would discard it. Just, to, you know, it was it was not committing to any kind of a tone that you could sort of hang on to. So, like, when they open the bedroom door at Amelia's and she's got a TV studio in there <laughs> or because they're having CIA family day, you know, uh, where you're like, you know, at, at a certain point you start to be like, really? As opposed to hilarious, which you did. Colin and you know I I'm aware that our friendship is at an end and right. it's been a good run for yeah, us. No, we've known each other a long time, so it's been good. You know, but yeah. you know it's sort of like you know when these two you know office villains are like, we'll get you this favor, but you're going to have to go on a date with this you know Amelia character, and then they set up Amelia as kind of ridiculous, but he just gets into the relationship. There's like no real comic payoff to it. He's not, he's just, he's just going along for the ride, you know, uh, and so, you know, he doesn't seem especially broken up when they break up, spoiler alert. Um, no, no, it's, it's all very transactional. It, we, you know, we're yeah, going to, we're, we're just, just going to, in order to have time for your recommendations, we're going to have to wrap this up now. Uh, the series is, um, uh, is The Recruit. It's on Netflix. It's eight episodes. Um, I, I now have space in my life for three, possibly four new friends. So, you know, email me. Uh, I'll give you a list of restaurants you can take me to. I'm an eater. All right, we'll be back after this.
All right, so we are back. Uh, time for me to say some thank yous, starting with Kat Pastor, our technical producer, who's not feeling too great today, but uh, but she's tough. She's tough. Uh, and uh, they pulled out her fingernail, and she still did the show. Uh, also, Jonathan McPants is the producer of The Nose, and he's the producer of this one in particular. Uh, thanks also to our wonderful panel, Jacques Lamar and Irene Papoulis and Pedro Soto. They are my former friends, but they're great panelists, uh, and now they're going to make some recommendations. Jacques, why don't you get us going? going to recommend two things the first is a book i just finished reading um after watching wednesday and not fine and not finding it very funny at least the first few episodes i decided to go back to the og and read about charles adams and uh, there's a biography called charles adams a cartoonist life by linda h davis and i found it really kind of fascinating to learn about the man behind the adams family so i recommend that and the other thing is just a blanket recommendation to get out and support your arts organizations and restaurants it's very easy to do during the holiday season but january february become very difficult for those institutions so please get out and support these things that want to see you um when it's not as festive all right. It's always festive in Jacques Lamar's life, uh, but yes. not everybody else's. Uh, Irene Papula, so you go next. <laughs> okay. Um, I have a Tanisha Dugan style uh, recommendation, <laughs> which is don't fret. Like I've been my only, my only, you know, I kind of feel like, and also to quote Jacques Lamar uh, from my perch on the top of Mount Idiot when it comes to recommendations, <laughs> I feel like I don't have any right now. And, but I'm not going to fret about that. And there's, that's my one new year's revolution resolution is stop fretting. And I realize I fret about everything and there's so much unnecessary things to fret about that we all do. And if you have unnecessary things that you're fretting about, just, just relax. It's okay. Don't fret. Be like Owen Hendricks. Go just charging into every situation and convinced you'll somehow get out of it. Um, yeah, and that's what, that's what Max was trying to tell him, right? Like, ah, don't worry about it. Just go on to the next one. Right. And, you know, uh, shoot right. someone if you have to. What's the big deal? Right. Actually, in your case, yeah. Irene, be more like Max. Shoot someone if you have to. Yes. Uh, all right. Yes. Uh, Pedro Soto, uh, you're up now. So this week, trying to get through all of this media, um, I, 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 on a get-off-my-lawn moment, I was – really thinking about just how how long modern TV is. And so my recommendations are shows that have come out recently that are all short, that fit the 18 to 24, slightly 40 minute length that you can just watch, enjoy, um, and that do a ton with the time that they have. So it's just a brief list. You can look at it on the website later, um, but um, I'm just gonna list them out. Shrill uh, on Hulu, The Bear on Hulu, uh, Dairy Girls on Netflix, um, Schmigadoon on um, Apple TV, Acapulco on Apple TV, and Los Spookies on HBO, and Our Flag Means Death also on HBO. All those shows, mostly comedies, tend to what I trend. All of them are fantastic. All of them are not multi-month, multi-hour you know, um, uh, requirements, and you will get a lot out of any of those that you pick. Yeah, I've watched a lot of those. By the way, for people who, who are about to start a search based on Pedro's spoken list, Dairy Girls is D-E-R-R-Y, not D-A-R-I-R-Y. That would be probably, yes. that could be like a porno movie or something. And oh, yeah. You, you know, <laughs> uh, and that would cause all kinds of problems, or not. Uh, mm -hmm. All right, so... Um, 
I'm going to recommend two things. One of them, uh, I don't really recommend that anyone who is on the show watch it because it's I, I like it because it's so much. Uh, or it's what the recruit reminded me the most of. Uh, it's a series called Imposters. Uh, it ran for 20 episodes over two seasons, uh, 2017 to 2018. I think it started on Bravo. It is another dark comedy. Uh, I don't want to say too much about it uh, except that uh, somehow or other it's – sense of humor and its way of using dramatic stakes to sell humor is very similar, at least for me, to what I liked about The Recruit. So uh, once again, not a lot of big stars in that one. Either Uma Thurman is probably the biggest star who's in it, except that there's probably some young star who I don't understand why they're popular because that's happening more and more. I would also just, I would recommend the work of Don DeLillo. However, I have to say this. White Noise is your on-ramp. White Noise is the novel you read. It's the gateway drug for the work of Don DeLillo, who I think, you know, maybe more than anybody in the 80s and 90s, uh, any novelist that I can think of, was really seeing around corners, seeing a lot of things uh, things that were going to happen. Uh, when, when 9-11 happened, uh, one of my first thoughts was, wow, if you'd read all of DeLillo's novels, you'd know you know how close we were to something like this. Uh, but a lot of them are difficult. Uh, White Noise, uh, oddly enough, is the easiest by far, the most uh, sort of comically sugar-coated. Uh, <laughs> and I know that might be very implausible if you just saw the movie. But um, So start there. And, and Libra also is pretty, uh, pretty readable. It's kind of his recreation of the JFK assassination uh, from the point of view of Lee Harvey Oswald. Running Dogs players are all pretty readable and, and very predictive of the future. But yeah, uh, definitely worth this, uh, worth uh, reading. And Jacques, have you tackled yet um, the Mary Rogers book, uh, Shy? I've heard nothing but amazing things about it. And uh, and so it's been on my list. I was hoping it'd be on audiobook, uh, but it's not. So I'm going to have to do it the old fashioned way. Right. I'm I'm sort of midway through it. And I do want to say before you read it, warn Arthur, because there's ways in which this is a book. And I think everybody has this experience. You you read three pages and you look up and you say to the other person in the room, OK, I got to tell you about this. <laughs> <laughs> so it is really not a one person experience, no matter how you try to deal with it. I had friends who were sitting on the beach this summer reading it. And just basically the person who wasn't reading it heard the entire book told in the form of anecdotes every 10 minutes. But it is um, right. it's terrific stuff. And it, it's you, uh, you've driven me to my one click. I'm right. going going right now. <laughs> All right. If you're a theater person, you can't stay away from this book. All right. Thanks to this wonderful panel, Jacques Lamar, Irene Papoulis, Pedro Soto. Thanks for listening today. We will be back on Monday. All the berry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.